Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Are you a fan of people's court? There's just something exciting about watching other people get judged. But are you ready for your day in court? Are you preparing your case as you stand before God the Father? Well, if so, you might be preparing the wrong argument and building the wrong defense. Today, we're continuing our study on John by looking at the relationship between Jesus and the Father and judgment. So turn to John chapter 5, verses 16 through 46, because today's message is entitled, Trial of the Millennium. Do you typically imagine our inevitable judgment as a case in court? Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face the judgment. But do you envision this judgment that's coming as your day in court? If so, there may be a few things that you might want to consider before facing judgment. Typically, there are five parts to a case in court. You have the initial appearance, and that is the first time a person would meet in court and the charges are read, and the judge will appoint an attorney to the defendant if they cannot afford one. So you have the initial appearance. You have the arraignment, where the defendant enters a plea of guilty or not guilty. You have the trial, where evidence is presented for or against the defendant. Uh, Then you have sentencing, where the defendant is ruled guilty or not guilty. And then you might have the appeal. Um, Sometimes decisions uh, at courts are of limited jurisdictions and they're uh, passed over or taken to a higher court, maybe even the Supreme Court, to which there is no appeal. Now, we see an example of the Supreme Court uh, or an appeal uh, in Scripture when we see the Apostle Paul uh, being tried for being a Christian and uh, he appeals to Caesar himself in Rome to plead his case. And what's interesting about appealing to a higher court is that not only um, whatever is decided there is final and can't be appealed, but whatever is decided there is also used in similar court cases. For example, in the Supreme Court case of Abington School District versus Shemp, the court ruled 8-1 to one in favor of Edward Shemp, declaring it unconstitutional to read the Bible in public schools. That's now a universal decision in schools. Uh, read a Bible in a classroom, prepare to be sued. Um, in the Supreme Court case of Van Orden versus Perry, the court ruled it unconstitutional to have a monument of the Ten Commandments outside of courthouses. That's why all the Ten Commandments monument, monuments were removed. So not only um, was it decided in those court cases, it's universal for everyone. Now, not all court cases are negative towards the church. For example, the Supreme Court case of Sherbert and Verner, um, the court deemed it unlawful to deny employment to an individual because they refused to work on the Sabbath. However, um, I had a professor in school who used to say, whenever the church gets into bed with the government, the church is always the one who ends up pregnant. Now, um, when people violate rights or break the law, the court system is used to settle disputes. And I think that's a reflection of the justice that we see from the Bible. For God will make all things right, and uh, that's what judgment's about. But what if our understanding of judgment in Scripture is flawed? What if our understanding of how judgment works on earth interferes with falling on the right side of the law in heaven? Now, in today's passage of Scripture, Jesus gives us insight on how the trial of the millennia will play out that's far more scandalous than the O.J. Simpson trial. The trial of the millennia involves you and me, and much like the Supreme Court decision, what's decided for one is also true for another. Jesus gives us a look inside the courtroom when he talks about the relationship between himself and the Father in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 46. And we're going to read uh, today's passage in parts. So I want to start 
with John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. This is what it says. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, he was healing people, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And what's interesting about this is Jews put Jesus on trial because of what he was doing and saying. Now try to understand why sound doctrine was so important for the Jews. They lived in a culture where they were constantly reminded of their disobedience. Because they disobeyed God, God allowed them to be enslaved by uh, a neighboring nation. So now Rome was over all the Jews. And so uh, God knew the, knew the Jews would reject, reject the Messiah. Uh, excuse me. He would reject the Messiah when he came. So um, he rejected them. The prophet Zechariah talked about what would happen as a result. He says, then he broke the staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. That's Zechariah eleven fourteen. Basically, what this meant for the Jews would, was that there would be several divisions within the Jewish people. Not long after Zechariah, there rose up five major divisions in the Jewish people. And what's interesting about this is these divisions didn't really have anything to do with their belief in God, although there were differences in opinions on how to interpret Scripture. These five major religions uh, weren't over theological differences, but how to respond to the Roman rule. Rome came in, they ruled the Jews, and these five different divisions had a different way of trying to resolve this conflict or respond to Roman rule. So the Sadducees, uh, for example, they were the religious elite who were given authority by Rome to hold religious office within the temple known as the Sanhedrin. Now they felt the best way to respond to Rome was to ignore Rome and uh, maybe even slander Rome, but uh, they, they certainly tried to exploit the Roman rule to get rich at the same time. So you had the Sadducees, then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the scholars and teachers of Scripture. They felt the best way to respond to Rome was to teach Scripture and educate the people and look towards the Messiah. Then you had the Herodians. This was the, uh, the political power group that supported their king, King Herod. They felt the best way to respond to Rome was to work with them, to get in bed with the government. Um, the Essenes were a group of uh, Jews who preserved Scripture, promoted inner purity, and lived in seclusion. They felt the best way to respond to Rome was to be completely disconnected from culture. So because, um, you know, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we believe the Essenes were the ones who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. So um, you can thank them for that. So you had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Essenes, and then you had the Zealots, which this was a militant group. They felt the best way to respond to Rome was by implementing guerrilla warfare. Um, they were a leftover bunch of people from the Maccabean Revolt where the Maccabee, where Maccabees formed a militant group to overthrow their oppressors and cleanse the temple, which is where we, you know, Jews get the celebration of Hanukkah. So five different major religions, or divisions, excuse me, uh, of the Jews, uh, and it was all about how to respond to Rome. So tension was extremely high between Israel um, and, and Rome. So uh, the last thing any of these sects wanted was another revolt that would get them into trouble. Because when the Jews, um, you know, they were walking on extremely thin ice with, with Rome, whenever they tried to revolt, whenever there was a riot, Rome would come in and slaughter them, man, woman, and child, to make an example for the rest of the nation. So uh, things were extremely tense. 
And for Jesus to walk onto the scene promoting that he knew the way to God and even broke traditions the Jews had, it was an extremely dangerous situation for everyone involved. In fact, on several occasions you see in Scripture that the Jews didn't seize Jesus right away because they feared a riot from the people. They didn't fear a riot necessarily from the people. What they feared was Rome coming in, and they had to deal with the consequences afterwards. So um, this is why Jesus was tried in secret, and Pontius Pilate went along with the crucifixion because he too feared a riot. They did not want to cause problems and for Rome's military to come in and destroy them. So the Jews did everything they could to squash problems whenever they uh, when they arose, and that's essentially how they saw Jesus. He wasn't sanctioned or given authority by the Pharisees to teach the law, and so they put Jesus on trial in their minds. And in verse 18, it says that Jesus not only healed on the Sabbath and broke tradition, he called God his Father and made himself equal with God. Now, this is an extremely important verse in Scripture. Um, it leads us to the conclusion of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting about the word Trinity is that you will not find it written anywhere in Scripture. So, why do we believe it? Well, just because the word isn't written in Scripture, the fact that Jesus came from divine origin is. Remember, John begins his letter by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this helps us to understand the deity of Jesus. In other words, that Jesus is God. So, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.26, it says, "Let God says, Let us make man in our image. The plural, excuse me, the plural nature uh, of the one and only God has always been a clear uh, indicator in Scripture. Uh, and it's, it, you know, even though the Scripture never uses the word Trinity, uh, that God has always been a, of a plural nature. So I've heard several people try to explain the nature of God by using analogies. For example, they say God is like an egg. You, know, you have the yolk, you have the egg white, you have the outer shell. Each of these three parts is still an egg, but they're separate. And, and they're still part of the greater whole. Another example would be to compare God to a man. A man can be a husband, a father, and a son all at the same time. There's three different roles, but one person. Or, for example, God is like the sun, the solar sun. The sun produces heat and light, and you can't separate them, but light and heat are different from the actual object. So the problem with these, these analogies is that although they help us to understand how three things can be one, God is not like anything. God is unique, and he can't be compared to anything. So while we mean well, we cannot truly explain him and do him justice as far as the Trinity goes. The truth is, is that God will always be greater than our three-pound minds can understand. You know, he's not going to fit in your three-pound brain. So um, the Jews, they failed to recognize this truth, and they wanted to kill Jesus for blaspheming, but, um, you know, he's the Son of God. But I want to ask you a question. Could you really blame him? I mean, what would it take to convince you that the person standing in front of you is God? What would, it, what would they have to do or say for you to make up your mind that the person in front of you is actually God himself? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day with, um, with Bill Murray. And it, he, he, he's reliving the same day over and over and over and over, so he knows exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. He knows all the people in it intimately. And he uses that opportunity to try to convince a woman he's in love with that he is God. And he shows her he has intimate knowledge of the people around them. Um, even though they don't know him, he's able to foretell who they are, what's going to happen, what's going to be said, and what's going to be done in the future before it happens. Now, what would it take to convince you 
that I was God. Now you start thinking on that point, and you might begin to get a picture of how it felt for the Jews regarding Jesus. Contrary to popular belief, you wouldn't believe if Jesus performed several miracles right before your eyes. Because Jesus did that for the Jews. He healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and they still wanted to kill him. In truth, the only thing that would convince you that Jesus is the Son of God is the work of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus said in Peter's confession that he's the Christ, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So, although we want to hiss at the Jews who wanted to kill Jesus, try to step into their shoes for just a minute and understand how impossible this leap was for them to make without the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And so, we, like the Jews, without the enabling of the Holy Spirit, we put Jesus on trial. Who was Jesus? Was he just a man? Was he a myth? Was he just a good teacher? Was he a legend that was built over time? Is he a son of God? Who is Jesus? And so we, we put Jesus up there and we say, hmm, I need to evaluate. And you know what? The jury's still out on this, so um, I'm going to have to save my verdict for later. But the truth is, as Jesus shows us in Scripture here, that he's not really the one who's on trial. We are. And Jesus, he's not the defendant. He's the judge. So I want to read in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 27. This is what it says. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to him him who he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. The time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good will rise and live, and those who have done evil will rise and can be condemned. By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and I, my, my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now, what's interesting in this passage is that um, uh, Jesus explains the relationship between the Father and the Son. He says that although the Son is separate from the Father, the Son does not act on his own. He only does what the Father does. So what God is able to do, the Son is also able to do. Now, what I find particularly interesting is what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. I find this interesting because when we typically picture the judgment scene, we see something different. For example, we might envision God the Father as the judge. Maybe he's wearing a long black robe and a white wig, and he's holding a gavel in his hand. And we even ask the question, are you ready to stand before God? I think when we ask this, we mean God the Father. So for us, the Father is the judge. Maybe we see Moses as the bailiff or something, and the angels are the jury. But we definitely envision Satan as the prosecutor, 
Revelation, Revelation 12.10 helps us in this. It says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. The worst part is that Satan doesn't have to make up stuff. Um, all he has to do is present the truth about us. So we're the defendant. Satan is the prosecutor. And we see Jesus as our defense, which is a nice sentiment, but unfortunately, it's not the biblical picture of judgment. In this passage, the Jews thought they were the judge, jury, and executioner. And several times in this passage, Jesus tells them, I tell you the truth. Now, I think he tells them this because they have been deceived. Just as easy as it is for us to be deceived, they were deceived. And in judgment, Jesus isn't our defense. He says he's the judge. And the system of judgment won't be anything like we've experienced on earth. Because trials here on earth generally have evidence presented for or against. If you ever watched an episode of Judge Judy, um, you would know that verbal testimony is not enough. You need to have evidence of wrongdoing. But Jesus preps his disciples for judgment in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out many demons and perform many miracles? But then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So you see these people show up for court with evidence. But because Jesus is the judge, he immediately dismisses it and instead uses a different system for judgment. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Now, we can be religious as we want. We can have, you know, we can read the Bible, we can go to church, we can pray all the time. But if we don't have a personal relationship with Christ, all the good we do in this world won't matter. Many people think that they're good people and they say religious things. Like I pray all the time. I read my Bible all the time. I talk about Jesus all the time, for example. That they would be rewarded with eternal life. But in reality, the only thing that matters is faith in Christ. Knowing Jesus. Those who don't know Jesus uh, won't do his work. They simply get work and they ask God to bless it. Jesus isn't our defense. He's the judge. And guess what? There's no appeal to a higher court. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says in John chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, for the father has life in himself, and so he's granted the son to have life in him in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. I want to read John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. It says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There's another one who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, uh, you sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier of that of John. For the very work of the Father has been given to me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father has sent me himself, has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does this word dwell in you, for you do not have believed the one who he has sent. You diligently study the scriptures, because you think by them you will possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
I have come from my father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe he accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes only from God? But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. Since, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, what's interesting about this passage is that Jesus shows us that the law is not on our side. In this passage, Jesus tells the Jews that they have been deceived. They think that if they follow the law, they will have eternal life. The problem is that the law wasn't supposed to lead them to righteousness. It was supposed to lead them to brokenness. And in their brokenness, they were to turn to Christ. Everything God commanded, from the law to the sacrifice of the animals, was leading to Christ. And because they failed to keep the law, they were commanded to sacrifice those animals, and that animal was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, which is why legalism is so extremely dangerous. Legalism is an extra-biblical set of rules that a person follows that eliminates our need for God. For example, the Jews practice keeping the Sabbath day holy. But instead of recognizing the Sabbath day as the day that they should be focusing on the relationship with the Father and, and you know work how work gets in the way of that, they instead saw, as an, saw it as an opportunity to enforce more rules to ensure that they didn't break it. Jesus wasn't in violation of keeping the Sabbath. He was in violation of their legalism. Now, if anyone was violating God's word, it was them. For God told them through Moses in Deuteronomy 4.2, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I gave to you. So the Jews ignored Moses' command, and instead added a bunch of legalistic rules to the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy. And Jesus told them that they diligently studied the scriptures because they thought that by following the law, they could possess eternal life. But they missed the point. All of Scripture points to Jesus. The Jews were so intent on following the letter of the law, and they knew it by heart, but they missed the true purpose was to lead them in their brokenness to Jesus. Now, the same thing can happen to us. We too can develop a list of extra-biblical rules that a person has to follow to attend our church. But Jesus told them that if they didn't know the love, you know, he says, I know you don't know the love of God in your hearts because if you did, you would have recognized that God is standing right in front of you. They were so enveloped by religion that they missed the Christ that they had truly longed for. Now, what Jesus says to them in verse 45 is truly ironic. You see, the Pharisees prided themselves in insisting that they followed Moses down to the minute detail. They followed every one of Moses' laws, and they even added a few of their own to ensure that they didn't break Moses' law. But in the courtroom, they saw Moses as their defense. But Jesus tells them, listen, Moses isn't your defense. He's the prosecutor. The law isn't here to save us. It's here to to condemn us. He tells them, you know the law. You should not have any other gods before me. You should not worship false idols. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. Thou shalt uh, honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. We have broken these laws. 
You say, well, I haven't broken all of them. Well, James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. In other words, if you break the law at any time, you are a lawbreaker. Now, Moses says, that he's not, or Jesus says, Moses isn't going to be there to save us. He's there to condemn us. The Pharisees prided themselves on keeping the law, but didn't recognize that nobody could. That's why Moses, after giving them the law, told them to look for the Messiah. And Jesus ends this debate with a great question. He asks, but since you did not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is a bunch of people that never met Moses. They just had teachings from what he said. We don't possess the ability to convince people that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Only the Holy Spirit can enable a person to believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter how much a scripture person reads, nor does it matter how religious they are. If they don't have their eyes open about Jesus, they simply will not believe in him. Now we, as the church, must be careful how we envision judgment, because if we don't, we might be building the wrong defense. Judgment isn't about you know, this courtroom scene that we see here on earth. We won't present our religious credentials and recite scripture to enter the kingdom of heaven. All we need for our defense is to know Jesus. And so I ask you, do you know Jesus? You might have sung songs about him. You might have listened to stories about him. But do you know him? You may know that Jesus rose from the dead. You may know that he established his church here on earth, but do you know him? You may know what he taught. You may, you may even know the plan he has for your life. But do you know him? Sure, you might know about him, but do you know him? Judgment is set upon this standard. It's not living a good life or doing what's right. It's all about knowing Jesus. So do you know him? If not, would you like to meet him? Would you like to meet the one who laid down his life for you and took it up again? If you would like to meet him, I've been given the incredible privilege of being able to introduce him to you. All it takes to know him is to turn your eyes to him and cry out, I want to know you, Jesus. And I surrender my life to you. Now, I wouldn't shortchange this. It's only something that can happen by the Holy Spirit. But if you're asking this question, do, do I really know him? All the sermons and all the Bible reading and all the song singing and all the Bible studies in the world can't help you. It comes down to this. If you don't know him, do you want to? Because if you want to, put your eyes on him and cry out. Look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to know you. And in that moment, you will meet the Savior of the world. You will be ready for the trial of the millennium. Not because you have lived a righteous lifestyle or because you prayed all the time. You will be ready because you will know Jesus. And Jesus will look to you and say, Enter into my kingdom. 
and all of its glory. For I know you, and you know me. Do you know Jesus today? There's no reason why you can't. Just turn to him. Put your eyes on him. Cry out. Jesus, I want to know you. Will you come be the Lord of my life? Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.